1986, the summer of 1986, my grandparents loaded my sister and I up in their station wagon. And this was one of those station wagons that had the, the fake wood panel down the side. It was one of those. And my grandparents and my sister and I, we were headed to Wichita, Kansas for summer vacation for a week. My uncle was in the Air Force and he was stationed there for a short time and we were going to visit him and it was one of the best vacations that I can remember as a child. We, we did a lot of things in that one week, a lot of fun things and spent time with my uncle and cousin and, and, and it was a great vacation. But the ride there was horrendous. It was it was hard. My grandparents were something, I'll, I'll put it to you that way, and traveling with them as a small child was something, or a little child was something, and even with my sister there. But we were traveling some 800 miles from Lewisburg, Tennessee, through Arkansas, through, and I don't know why we went this way. I was looking on a map yesterday. I don't know why we went to Oklahoma and then up to Wichita, Kansas. But I remember certain parts of the trip were like, this is going to last forever. This is going to take so long. And I remember in the back seat, all I had with me for this trip was a, a WWF little action figure. And it was one of those that was made out of that hard plastic rubber, whatever. And, and the arms and legs didn't even bend. And I was thinking about that's all I had. That's not even fun to play with. Just stare at it. And so what, what did we do? And some of the uh, the kids in here today are like, you didn't, you didn't have a device, you didn't have movies to watch, no. And so what did you do? You stared out the window, that's what you did. You stared out the window, that's how trips were, uh, were taken during that time, that's how you distracted yourself as you waited to get there, and I'm sure my grandparents were listening to George Jones and Conway Twitty the whole way. But I wasn't into that kind of music at that time, so I'm certain it was torture. But my eight-year-old self was set up for something that, that I don't have today, that it's really hard for me to do, and that is to have patience, that is to wait. That, that, that moment and those moments in my childhood set up for the practice of patience, which is something we don't practice now. We don't have now. We all, in so many ways, everyone in here, we are intoxicated with immediacy. We want it right now. And most things we can get right now. You can get approved for car insurance before this sermon is over and be covered on your way home. If Chick-fil-A, even with two lines, is backed up to I-75, you will still demand that you get your meal in less than five minutes. We, we want it now, and we are addicted to those things in our life. And so when we pull out our phones, our computers, our iPads, and we see spinning wheels, and we see loading percentages, and we, we see that the app is taking too long to download, we, we go crazy. 
And, and sometimes we don't even wait for those things to happen. We just click off of them and try to do something else so we can get something immediate in the moment. We are intoxicated with immediacy, even in our relationships with one another, in our conversations. You have left me on red for two minutes. Are you mad at me? Why did you not respond to my text? I saw that you read it immediately. And we want things in the immediate. And this is why James would tell us we are not wired up to suffer. We're not wired up to suffer for the sake of the gospel because we are so impatient and we are glutted with the immediate all of the time. James says, if you're going to suffer for King Jesus, you better be ready to be patient. You better be ready to be long-suffering and endure, and you better be ready to wait on some things. Remember last week as James talked about wealth, he focused on wealthy landowners who were oppressing even poor Christians. They were taking them to, to court and they were paying off the judicial system so that they could have more wealth. And many Christians were suffering. Their, their, their possessions were taken away from them and they were left poor and their kids were dying. And, and, and now James, who has confronted the rich, the wealthy, the oppressors, now he turns his attention back to the church. And he says to them, I know this is going on. But in that context of oppression and persecution, you've got to be patient. And you've got to endure some things and wait on some things. And in verse 7, he says, you must be patient. Jesus is coming. Notice verse 7. He says, be patient. And this word is used over and over, and it's emphasized here in the beginning part of this passage, and it means to be long-tempered or short-fused. You don't lose it. You're not losing your emotions. You're not freaking out. You are patient. And he's specifically telling the church to be patient with those who are oppressing them, those who are persecuting them. Now is not the time to lash back. Because you can't do anything about it. No, be patient. Notice he says, therefore, brothers, in light of the persecution, in light of the suffering, until the coming of the Lord. And the point he's making here is you're not going to be able to do anything about this persecution until Jesus comes again. Notice the phrase, coming of the Lord. It, 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 it comes from the word perusia, which means presence or revealing and it points to the fact that there is a day when Jesus will be revealed in the sky. And the term is used of a king who has gone off to battle. He's gone out to war and he's defeated the enemies of the people. And now he comes back to the city and there is an announcement. The king is here. The king is back. And what happens? The people come out of their houses and they rush to greet the king. And James says, that is going to happen. 
There will be a trumpet blast and there will be the announcement that Jesus is here. He is revealed in the sky and his people will meet him as he begins to rule and reign. And he says, be patient until that day comes. The day of the Lord, he's referring to here, always included the judgment of, the, of God's enemies and the deliverance of the saints. And so James is saying, you wait for the coming of the Lord, because on that day, your oppressors will be judged and you will be delivered. Now understand, he's not saying, you got to learn patience, buck up and just get over it. Just get over it, endure it. No, he's saying the way you learn patience is you look to the coming of the Lord and you wait. You're waiting on something. You're not just getting over it. You're trusting something is coming. And he uses an example here of a farmer. Notice the text continues. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. And so he points to a farmer who is producing uh, crops, crops that were necessary to live. And you got to think about any agricultural examples during this time. The farmer is absolutely dependent upon the crop to live. And so this isn't just hippie farming where you put some tomatoes in a bucket and you hope it works out. No, he is dependent upon what his land will produce so his family can survive. And yet he doesn't freak out about it. Notice it's, he's being patient. He's waiting. Why? He refers here to the rain. There are seasons that must take place before this crop can be produced. And it involves the crop. It involves the ground receiving rain. Now during this time, there was, there was rain in the fall before the crop was planted on schedule. And then there was rain right before the harvest on schedule. And so the farmer is waiting for those things to happen before he can go harvest his fields, before he can go gather the crop. And so he has to be patient. And he has no control over what's happening. He plants and then he waits. And he says, that is the way you are to wait for the coming of the Lord. The farmer plants and he does everything that he can. And then he sits back and waits for the seasons, the rain, and the crop to do its work before he gathers it. Now, one of the things we learn in the New Testament is we live in the last days. We live in the time between the resurrection and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's called the last days because the next thing that will happen is Jesus will return. There is the cross where Jesus dies for our sins. He suffers in our place under the wrath of God. And then he is raised up from the dead. The only thing left for him to do is return and rule and reign. And just like a farmer who has done everything he can do, and now he just waits. God has done everything. Everything that it will take for Jesus to come and rule and reign. And now we just wait on it. It is the next thing that is going to happen. It is what we are waiting on. And so he's like, he says, like the farmer who waits for rain. He knows it's consistent. 
Rain was a sign of God's faithfulness because it always happened at the same time. And he said, in the same way you expect the rain, you expect Jesus to return. And because he'll return, notice verse 8. He says, you also be patient like the farmer. Wait and establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. In the New Testament, we see in every writer the emphasis that the coming of the Lord could happen at any moment. Any moment. That is the way it is set up. Everything is in place and Jesus could return at any moment. And he says, establish your hearts be firm, be solid, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, this phrase, establish your heart, it is the same phrase used of Jesus when it was time for him to go to the cross. And and the text says, he set his face like flint to go do what he was sent to do. He was focused. He was intent. This is his mission. And in the same way, you are to set your heart your desires, your thoughts on the coming of the Lord. That is what you are waiting for. Of all the things that you are waiting for and trying to be patient about, this is it. You are waiting for Jesus to return and it should encompass your heart's desires, your thoughts, your feelings, your focus. And notice he says, it is at hand. Meaning it's there. Jesus could be, back to the word coming, revealed at any moment. It's here. Jesus is standing ready to be revealed as king. It's kind of the same way we were talking about um, Ella Morin, who was about to have a baby last Sunday. And John and Jennifer were like, the next time you see us, we'll be grandparents. And then Jennifer called herself and said, well, I'm already a grandparent. And you're saying, well, well, baby May will be here next week. But she's already here. She's right there in the womb. And it's the same way you should think about the coming of the Lord. It's right there. there it, it can happen at any moment. The revealing, the delivery of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ could happen at any moment. And that is how you two are to live your life, expecting it, waiting it, waiting for it. Now, patience here, the point with James, is cultivated by expecting Jesus to come at any minute. If you expect Jesus to come at any minute, you're going to look around at your life and it's going to cause you to have Wait, a lot more patience with things, a lot more patience with people as you, as you go, okay, I'm frustrated, I'm irritated, I wish that was different, but Jesus could come back today. And you're able to endure those things. One of the points to be made here is the farmer doesn't cultivate patience by yelling at the ground or the sky. He doesn't go out every day to, to the ground that still hasn't produced the crop and yell Grow! Rain! Well, you can't do that. And all that's going to do is make him frustrated and angry. And yet, that's how some of us live our life daily. We live in this world yelling and screaming at things to produce what it cannot produce for us. Only Jesus will bring heaven to earth. And so you can't go out at the world and scream at it. 
And you can't go out at the world and, and yell at it for it to give you what you need, what is coming to you in Jesus, the kingdom of God. All that's going to do is make you impatient. All that's going to do is make you hopeless. And so some of us need to get off of the clickbait news political pundits whose one desire is to make you angry. Have you not realized that yet? And we glut ourselves with those things. And what does it do? It just makes us angry at the world around us. And we walk around yelling at other people. We walk around just mad and angry all the time, ready for a fight. When we should be walking around and saying, yeah, this isn't what God designed. I'm sinful. The world is sinful. But I'm waiting for Jesus to return. And I'm not going to fixate on thousands of things on a daily basis that only Jesus can fix. And one of the things the farmer does while he is waiting is he works. He still works. He makes sure uh, before the rain comes in, in the fall that the soil is is where it needs to be to receive the rain that is coming, to receive the crop that will be planted. And he gets out there and he works and he weeds and he tills the field and he prepares the soil for the rain to come. And then when, when, when the crop is growing and it's almost time for harvest, he's still getting out and working. And, and there's a rain that's coming and then we will be able to harvest this crop. And he's still working while he's waiting. You know how you cultivate patience? You wait for Jesus to return and you work while you wait. There's, there's thousands of things on a daily basis that you can't control. There's hearts of people in your life that you can't change. And there's injustice and oppression and we live in a sinful world that is cursed and there's things that we can't do anything about and we are just waiting for Jesus to come and make all of those things right. And so what are we doing in the meantime? We should be working. We should be planting what we know is certain and eternal in the gospel. I wake up every day and I know the only hope for this world is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I am sowing and I am sowing the gospel and I am waiting for God to bring forth a harvest that begins in our hearts and will encompass the globe. And I am sowing the gospel, sowing the good news, and I am waiting. But to have patience, you've got to live every day a few weeks ago, we said, write on your reminders and your calendars, if the Lord wills, you should add to that, if the Lord wills and Jesus doesn't return. I'm going to do this or that if the Lord wills or Jesus doesn't return. And live every day expecting that today could be the day. By the way, we, we talked about this. Life goes by so fast, so quick. I feel like we just took VBS decorations down. And we're already planning for VBS the next year. That thing that I, I, I'm about to do. I just, I, every year, I, I, I thought I just did that. It, it's already time for that. It goes by so quick. And you should live every day. We're one day closer. And it's going to be here before you know it. 
And you live every day expecting it. Notice he says, be patient, Jesus is coming. In verse 9, be patient with one another. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As you are waiting for Jesus to return, and you know there is hope, there's a harvest that's coming, don't get irritated with one another. Don't grumble. The word is to sigh, moan, murmur, or complain because you are frustrated and you are annoyed with one another. And why should you not grumble against one another? So that you wouldn't be judged. Now remember in the book of James how he talks about judgment. And he says, you will be evaluated in the same way you evaluate others. And so if you evaluate others with mercy, that's proof that you really know God's mercy. And God will evaluate you, judge you with mercy. But if you set up some law in your heart and that is the way you judge other people, not by the law of love and you are harsh with them and you are self-righteous, wanting them to meet your standards, then you are proving you don't understand the grace of God and that is the way God will judge you. And he says, be careful in your grumbling because it could be a sign you don't understand God's grace. The way you talk and the way that you act with one another. The words, James is big on words coming from our heart. Do you genuinely love one another? Then why are you grumbling against one another? And if you can't evaluate one another with love, God will not evaluate you with love and mercy. But notice how he ends the verse. The judge is standing at the door. Meaning Jesus is about to walk in. Now, this same concept is used in Revelation, where it says, behold, he stands at the door and knocks. And we use that with evangelism a lot. He's knocking on your heart. Let him come in. Actually, what that means is Jesus is knocking on the door of the churches, and he is about to come in and evaluate the churches. Are they preaching the gospel? Are they loving one another? He says, be careful how you talk about one another. Because we all could be standing before Jesus, the judge, at any minute, giving account for what we are saying. And our impatience with others is a display that we are really impatient with God. We're impatient with God's timing. I am irritated with you because I am still here on this planet and I'm not in heaven and you are still an idiot and incompetent, and imperfect. We should be in heaven right now, and you should have more sense about you. And so I'm going to grumble, and I'm going to complain. What is that? You're questioning God's timing in your life for you and this person and for human history. And you're impatient with God's judgment. And I want to say real quick, you need to go back and listen to Clay's sermon on slander. It, it was brilliant, it was convicting, and we all need to listen to it probably once a month. You need to go back and listen to it. And that's what he's getting at here. You set yourself up as judge of others, and you are evaluating them by your own righteousness, and you are judging others by yourself, by your self-righteousness. Why aren't you like me? And you're neglecting the grace of God. And so he says here, before you look at your brother or sister in Christ like a little child ready to say, you stupid head, 
understand the Father is standing at the door watching everything you're doing. And that should temper the way you talk about one another. That should temper your nitpicking with one another. Your frustration with one another. Understand today, church, Jesus sees clearly the scrutiny that you have for your brothers and sisters in Christ. He's standing at the door watching you evaluate them by your own standards. And do you want him to use the same scrutiny with you that you're using with others? No, you would say, Jesus, I'm covered in your blood and your righteousness. I'm trusting in the gospel. You must be merciful to me. And what Jesus would say to you is, so is your brother and sister in Christ. Be merciful to them in the way that you talk about them, in the way that you grumble about them. Let me say this. The most damaging witness for the church in this time in human history are Christians who are angry and mad all the time, not just at the world, but at each other. It is the most damaging witness of the gospel. And it hurts the church when you are constantly yammering about your brothers and sisters and the world sees it. Remember, we will all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ together and give an account for how we talk about one another. Don't damage the gospel. And that's what he's saying here as you wait for the Lord Jesus Christ. Be careful in the way that you talk about one another. And then he gives two examples here of the prophets and Job. And, and, and he mentions the prophets in verse 10. And he says, And as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. If we look back at anyone who suffered the most in the Old Testament, we look at the prophets. And what was their task? In the name of the Lord, they warned the people of God, judgment is coming. In the name of the Lord, they were on God's side. They were God's mouthpiece delivering God's word. And what happened to them? They suffered at the hands of God's people. The prophets were put in stocks. They were locked in dungeons. They were beaten. They were sawn in two. They suffered in the name of the Lord. And he says, when you understand your role in the world to be a prophetic minority as the church and to call out to the rest of the world, judgment is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Be warned. When you say there is right and wrong, you will suffer. And you can be patient if you expect that. We're impatient because we don't expect to suffer for the sake of the truth. And it shocks us. Why why would anyone reject Jesus? He says, remember the prophets. And then he says, remember Job. He says, behold, we consider those who are blessed happy or steadfast because they remained steadfast. They were firm to the end. They were unmoved in their message and in their hope in the coming kingdom. And he says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now this fits with James's theme throughout the book that we are to consider it joy when we suffer. Why? God is proving something to us and to the world around us that we can trust him. He is proving our faith is real. 
And it's the same thing he did with Job. Remember? Satan says, he only worships you because he's rich and has everything. If you took that away from him, he would curse you. And everything is taken away. Loses his children. Loses everything. He's, he's on the ground with boils on his body. Scraping them off with dirt. Trying to get some relief. And all he has is his wife. And she was a ray of sunshine. She looked at him and said, curse God and die. And Job said, no. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And James says, that's what God is doing with you in your suffering. He is proving he is good. And your faith that he is compassionate, that he is full of mercy, it is being displayed before the world around you. You confess Jesus is Lord and God is good. Okay, let's see it. Suffer for him. And he says, remember the prophets who suffered and they endured to the end. And remember Job who to the very end clung to God's compassion and mercy. And all things were restored to him. But more than that, when we get to the end of the book of Job, he stands before God and he says, I questioned you in ways I had no right to question you. Now my eyes have seen you and I am but dust before you. And he says, that's what God is proving to us, that he is sovereign creator king, but he's also compassionate and merciful. And he's displaying that when we suffer. There's the test. Is he really merciful? Will you suffer for him? Then he gets to the end here, verse 12. And he says, as you suffer like the prophets and as you suffer like Job, he says, above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. He says, suffering is going to squeeze in around you, whether it's you're persecuted or whether you're enduring life, things are taken from you and life is really hard. And he says, in those moments, and some of us know what this is like, we're going to be praying to God, God, if you would just take this away, and we're going to make deals with God. And he says, no, you just have to trust him in those moments. And he says, don't swear by any other oath. Don't swear by heaven or by earth. Now, he uses this to remind them that there are folks in their cultural context who would say, when they were brought before men, and they, they would be questioned, is Jesus Lord? Swear before God. Is he Lord? Or Yes or no? And what they would try to do is say, I'm not going to swear to God, but I'll swear by heaven and earth. That's not God, so that's not sinning. And this was a way to take an oath and lie. It was like having your fingers crossed behind your back. And he says, you're going to be called before courts and you're going to be asked, is Jesus Lord or is Caesar Lord? Don't put your hand behind your back and cross your finger and say, Caesar's Lord. No, he says, in those moments, 
You are being called to that moment to testify the truthfulness that Jesus is Lord. That's why God is causing the suffering in your life. So that you would witness even in suffering that he is king and Lord. And so don't lie. In those moments, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And notice he says, so that you wouldn't fall under condemnation. What's he getting at there? If the truth Jesus is Lord is really in your heart and you really believe those things, it's going to come out of your mouth. And so you may be proving and suffering that you really didn't believe he was Lord. He says, let your yes be yes. Hold tight. Be patient. He's coming. Stand firm. And I think he has in his mind Job's wife in suffering. Looked at Job and said, curse God and die. He says, no. Or Peter. I will never deny you. All these other idiots, they're going to leave you, but I will never deny you. And then when suffering came, when he was questioned, what did he say? I never knew him. He says, no, suffering is closing in. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Tell the truth. We've been entrusted with the truth, and we must tell it even when suffering comes. And here's the reality for the Christian When you confess Jesus is Lord, it is your oath above all other oaths to always tell the truth. You don't have to put your hand on the Bible. You may have to do that in certain contexts, your court. You don't have to swear on anything else. He's not against taking oaths. He's just saying, as a Christian, you've said Jesus is Lord. That is your oath. You have sworn to always tell the truth. You have sworn to tell the truth as a representative of the truth. Now get this, because I think it has massive implications for Christians who are living right now in our cultural context. You must tell the truth at all times. You cannot lie. It is hypocrisy to say, I know the truth, and then convince yourself at times it's okay to lie. No, you are a representative of the truth. And we are being asked to lie a lot. And this is the way suffering will come in our context. Will you lie about reality? Will you play make-believe with a world around you that is trying to deny the truth and play make-believe? Will you? And so when your friend asks you, do you think this is sin? Do you think the way that I'm living is sin? You tell me. You go to church every Sunday. Do you think my lifestyle is sin? The question is, will your yes be yes? Or will you say, well, that's between you and God. Will your yes be yes? Or your boss comes in this week and says, you know what I need you to do? I need you to check this box right here. I know that's not their gender, but you know we got to do these things now. Will you tell the truth? Will your no be no? And we can say today that has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, his name is the truth. The greatest hypocrisy is for us to lie to the world around us. And we tell the world around us, judgment is coming. And you know what that creates in our life toward others? Patience. 
because they are about to endure the wrath of God. And in patience, we still tell them the truth because we have sworn allegiance to these truth and his name is Jesus. And the reality is James had to come to learn patience, the sort of patience that led him to suffering. Jesus was a man. James is older brother, to be exact. And I imagine there were times in James and Jesus' life where they could have been in the room and James was arguing with Jesus. Can you imagine arguing with the sinless Son of God as your brother? And frustrated and angry. And then he would turn around and Joseph is standing there at the door. At the door. Seeing his grumbling, his complaining against his brother. But there was another time when James turned around and saw someone standing at the door. James, the one who rejected his older brother Jesus his whole life, called him a loon, crazy. Yeah, he's a weirdo. I don't know what he's doing out here preaching that he's the Messiah. And then he's killed on the cross and he's raised from the dead. And James gets word, your brother is back from the dead. And God begins to do something in his heart. And there was a moment where he's gathered with his mother and his brothers. And probably struggling in his own heart. And he turns around and his brother is standing at the door. At the door. His brother who is also his judge back from the dead. And he bows his knee and he follows Jesus as Lord and Savior. And he's the pastor of the first Jerusalem church. And James is willing to say, yes, he's Lord. And he's willing to be tossed from the temple and clubbed to death in in the name of the Lord. Why? His brother had been patient with him. His brother had been patient with him his whole life and died for his sin and his brother was his only hope. If you're here today, Jesus is at the door. Jesus is at the door. And what should go through your mind, if you want to learn patience in this moment, patience with others, what should go through your mind is he has spent your whole life being patient with you. And what the Bible tells us is his patience leads to repentance. Would you repent of your sin today? And like James, who knew the patience of his brother, follow him. Would today your yes be yes before the Lord Jesus Christ?